This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The Rays Radio Network proudly presents This Week in Rays Baseball. Here's your host, Neil Solons. We appreciate you joining us for our latest alumni podcast. We've done a number of these, and we're going to kind of throw a little bit of a curveball here. Uh, we're going to step back to uh, one of the first years of the franchise's uh, existence and, and go forward to, and in large part, it's because this uh, gentleman was supposed to be, if the season were ongoing right now, would be at our ballpark for a special night uh, at the ballpark too, and that's Jim Morris. Uh, the rookie who has a new book out called Dream Makers that we're going to discuss that and a whole lot more. Uh, Jim, pleasure to have a chat with you. Oh, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, tell me this, what inspired this book? What led you to uh, decide to come out with something new? Uh, and there is a lot new uh, for people who know a little bit about your story. Overwhelming questions after speeches for question and answer sessions would be, the movie was awesome. Dennis was awesome. All this stuff is just like this big, beautiful cake. But that was then. What has happened now? And now is such a difficult question to answer because it's been a lot. And I am known in my speaking world as a person who just kind of lays it out there. And I don't tell anybody to have faith and I don't tell you what to do. But I kind of relay some of the decisions and mistakes I've made in a humorous manner and kind of present them to you. And if you can relate to that, you can go, wow, if he overcame that, then I can overcome this. And so the book came out of that, but it took us 15 years to get the ending. And you have overcome so many challenges that I don't think probably a lot of fans of the Rays or the game truly realize what of the challenges that you did face do you think was the most difficult to overcome that you touched on in your book and why? So many surgeries in succession, constantly on opiates at a time when our country was a wasteland for opiates. And I wasn't misusing them or anything else. I was taking them like the doctor said, but the pain was still there. And my pain with Parkinson's, I realized there is a specific slot for people like me that have head injuries that severe headaches. And so my neck would lock up, I get a sinus infection, and then I would wake up with a headache at two o'clock in the morning and this headache didn't like, hey, take a couple aspirin and go to bed and wake up and we're good. This is like, this is March and you got a headache on March 1st and now it's October and you still have the same headache. In the meantime, I'm traveling and I'm speaking and I'm not missing engagements. But that whole snowball of stuff, the opiates and the vodka, just to keep going and moving, I would either sleep and then I would go talk and then I would come back and sleep and then I would fly home and I would sleep until I had to pack again and I would go again. But I do it in a humorous manner because chronic illness is nothing to laugh at, but it can, we cannot give up. And for a period of my life, I just gave up and believe what the doctor said. It's just going to get worse. It's just going to get worse. And because of my faith and because of my girls at my church, and I have to say this because they want me to, I call them my girls on purpose because that's what they want. 
They are 50 to 90, but they do not want to be called women. They do not want to be called ma'am. Those are my prayer girls. And they prayed over me every surgery went into. And my wife was looking up a calendar the other day, and there were 58 different surgeries in 20 years. Wow. She had me pictures of going in with my little hat on the hair that I don't have. And you look back at it, you're like, how did we get through that? And then faith and laughter and love. And when I coached and then when I got to see it, when I played baseball is a whole lot more than just the people on the field. There is a, a supporting cast that helps so many other people, the starters, of course, but every individual has to do their job to make the team work. And we're all chess pieces. And I went from being a coach to being coached. And so in all that, I got to stand back and look at decisions made and whose strengths and weaknesses and baseball has come a long way analytically. And I just, it is just a different ball game and it's a whole lot higher level. And so now I'm glad to be speaking instead of playing ball because I don't know that I could pass a physical, but we'll see. You look like you could. You certainly look like you could. You, you touched on it, you know, the, the challenges with alcohol. You went into some, some, I don't know if I'd call them dark areas, but um, a lot of people would have a tough time talking about this. Uh, you, went through, you went through rehab. Um, you had a very challenging first marriage that was going on while, while you were ascending to the big leagues and after you got to the big leagues. Um, you had obviously a father who was abusive in, in different ways. Um, from that standpoint, was it almost therapeutic to be able to tell all these different stories and to, to give people the understanding that through all that, you can still make it. I think the first time that I have somebody go, I read your book, I related to it, and it's helped me overcome whatever obstacle they're going through. There is so much of a, a menagerie of crap that happened over 20 years that you're just like, how does anybody overcome that? Well, one step at a time, one day at a time, and just keep moving forward. And my time in rehab helped. And just I'll explain this real quick because you alluded to it. The Christmas of 2016, I don't remember. And I was on opiates. I was drinking vodka. And my GP prescribed benzodiazepines for me to help my anxiety with all the kids and all the families and all the moms coming in town for Christmas. And I don't remember seven days. And the first thing I remember was being on a train at DFW going from one terminal to the next. And I'm down on a knee and my wife is sitting next to me. And I said, why are you doing this? And she said, you need to do this. And I walked into that rehab center. I call it the last resort for the last resort. And if you want a sobering fact real quick, go in there and have them take all your belongings away, go through every single thing, then make you strip and do jumping jacks naked. and you will go, hey, I am in the wrong place. <laughs> but I was mad for a few days, and then it turned into me talking to other patients there and other staff there, and then kind of becoming the person I am, the motivator, and getting my life back and going, hey, I'm not dying. This isn't over. Why am I quitting? This is stupid. And my pastor, who was the counselor there, calls me to the office. This guy loves baseball. He has artifacts from every major league team. And he sits me down and he goes, love the story, love the movie, love Dennis Quaid playing you. Why are you here? And I said, because I lost my faith. And he goes, okay, and you're a Christian. I said, yes, sir. He goes, where's Jesus? And I said, right next to me the whole time. 
He goes, so Jesus is your co-pilot. And I said, absolutely. Just like that sticker on the bumpers that used to be, Jesus is my co-pilot. He goes, if you had Jesus with you, why would he be your co-pilot? Why would you not let him be in charge? And something just flipped in me. And for the period that I'm at rehab, I don't detox. I don't have any illnesses. I'm watching everybody else come out of both ends and just be sick as a dog. And I'm fine because I got my girls praying for me. I get there and I'm helping everybody else. Then I give a speech at the end, talking to everybody about why you're here, what God is here and everything else. So everybody knew who I was. And I'm not going to keep that a secret. If you're going to tell the rehab world, you might as well tell the whole world because everybody's got problems and we all have things to overcome. And whether you go to church or whether you sit in your living room on Sundays and you look around your family, if there are enough people in your family, somebody's got problems. And we may not know what that problem is. It is a family problem, but it's up to the family to lift us up. And so it absolutely saved my life going there. I came home three and a half years sober, don't care about it. The first speech I met is three days after rehab in Minneapolis. I walk back behind the curtain and every liquor bottle known to man is open. And they're like, go ahead and drink. Everybody else has been drinking all day. And I'm like, I'm good. Thank you. And that was just like a little test right out of the box. And I just didn't even care. I didn't even smell it. And three years and three and a half years later, I'm working out every day. I'm walking every day. And now every other day I'm running. And three and a half years ago, my elderly mom bought me a cane and said, this is for you. And my doctor goes, you need that because you can't walk anymore. And now I'm running. So I'm not going to tell people what to do, except don't give up. We've been given a very critical time, I think, in this country of four months, and we've got a doubleheader of problems going on right now. But let's go back to the one that started us off in January, February. We've had a time to reset and retool our families so that we can make a cohesive unit again and figure out, hey, why did we get married in the first place? Look at these beautiful kids that we have that we can say more than hi and bye to every single day. Let's make this team strong so that we can go back out in the world and then we can make that team stronger because everything starts with the foundation. Sorry, that was a little bit of a long answer. No, it, but, but it's, it leads me to another question. Um, obviously, your, your second wife, Shauna, you touched on her briefly, but you talk a lot about her in this book, has been extremely uh, supportive. And you mentioned the family. Um, your three kids that are detailed in the movie, I know one of them you talked about in the book is now a lawyer. How are your three kids doing? And how have they been with all of, all of the change and, and the new book coming out? My girls are very excited. The boys are married. One has a little daughter, and so they're occupied. <laughs> and one works for Corporate Hilton, and the other one is a lawyer, and his wife works in a hospital. And so we moved to San Antonio to be near my granddaughter, and we've not been able to see her very often because mm. mommy works in a hospital. And that's been tough but everything is picking back up and everybody's moving on. I've got two kids in Angelo state doing master's degree and one in nursing and one in psychology. I got one in California getting a Bible degree. Uh, she's my reformed child. She, we had a lot to deal with, with her growing up with bipolar and everything. And she is doing great and fantastic and everybody's healthy and happy. And it's just, it's been a blessing doing zoom calls like this and getting everybody on the screen at one time. And we can't get everybody together physically, but we can be together and we can tell everybody we're thinking about each other. And so it's just different. I don't know about normal anymore, but different. 
No, no doubt. What do you hope that um, someone who picks up this book will gain from it? Because you've, you've touched on some of the important things that, you know, that come from this book, but what do you hope people gain? I think whether you have faith or not, I think there are some important things to detail. I was never supposed to be able to pitch again. I was never supposed to throw harder than I did the first time. And you come back throwing 12 miles an hour harder with a slider and somewhat control, you know, for a lefty, not bad. But at 28, the doctor said, you'll never pitch again. I came back and I threw 100 miles an hour. That is an obstacle that you overcame, all because of a group of kids who saw something in me that I thought was long gone. And when I pushed them, they pushed back. Then Parkinson's, it's going to kill you. Everything's going to get worse. Nobody gets better. And then to have my neurologist put me through all the tests again two years ago and then do a brain scan and go, your dopamine is normal. We don't know how this happened. It doesn't happen. I've been doing this for 15 years. It doesn't happen. And then even last year, um, when I was taking the Parkinson's medicine, it killed my stomach, so I had gastric bypass. And I didn't think I was fat because you know how guys are. You look in the mirror, you go, if I lost 20 pounds, then I would only have like 20 more to go, and I'll be in pretty good shape. And then you lose all this weight and your wife is showing you pictures on the phone. See this surgery? Not my face is like this big. And I'm like, okay, that's enough of that. And she's having a good time with it. But last year I had a surgery in which the doctor, I kept complaining about stomach pain. I've got stomach pain. It hurts. And so he goes back in and a two hour surgery is an eight hour surgery. And he goes, I don't know how you're alive. He goes, you had the biggest internal hernia I've ever seen. Your intestines were up on top of your lungs. Like I told you, I hurt. So I should be dead there. Uh, I don't remember 2016. I OD'd. I should be dead there. We can overcome a lot more than what we give ourselves credit for. The people that we're least nice to are ourselves. And so that projection we put off on everybody else is that mirror we're looking at it as we're talking to other people. But it's really how we see us. And I want people to pick up the book and go, chronic illness, I can overcome that. Addiction, I can overcome that. People telling me I can't get it done, I can overcome that. By surrounding yourself with really good people, it starts with the family. I think it's a great message to tell. And I think more than that, even though faith is very important to you, I, I didn't feel that the book kind of used it as a hammer, so to speak. That it was That it's important, but it wasn't. It wasn't overly pushed, if that's the right phrase for it. No, it was my experience, just like the baseball part of it was. I don't take credit for that. I pushed a bunch of kids and they pushed back and somehow, and you can attribute it to whatever you want to, but I'm not ever supposed to pitch again with all the muscle out of my shoulder and I come back. And, and then with the Parkinson's, they, it's amazing because in the middle of it, Neil sitting on the side of my couch with a vodka in my hand, at three o'clock in the morning because I can't sleep because my head hurts so bad. And you're going, I guess this is it. And then when you come out on the other side, it was just a bump in the road and it was nothing. And we make such big mountains out of things that aren't really problems, but we make them into problems. And then the problem that we're really facing is hiding behind this one that we think we're doing, but we need to deal with what's behind that. And so we've just got to get over ourselves. I think the biggest thing for me in going through all this and I've done this because of my grandparents' tutelage. And you read the book and you know how much they mean to me. But it's to take judgment out of it. 
it's not for me to judge anybody else. It's hard for me to take care of myself. If I can take care of myself, then I can be a better person in the family or out in public or at my job. But it starts within. And so working out constantly, learning how to do virtual meetings, that is the new me now because when are we going to get, it's hard for a public speaker to go out in public and speak. Mm -hmm. You're right. And, and you, you have chapters in this book about, and I think it's kind of a theme about dream makers and dream takers. Um, and do you think you were able to really differentiate prior to sitting down and putting this book? And, and how are you hoping that those chapters of the book help people grow? I think those will absolutely, because for 20 years I've been talking those in some form or fashion and people really congregate towards that. I'll come up, people will come up to me and go, my dad was your dad. I think they're related and they're crying. And as a dad and a man, as soon as they put my first son in my arms, something very mysterious happened to me and this water came falling out of my face. And I'm like, what happened? And apparently God gave me emotions. And so they'll come up to me crying. I start crying. Then we start talking and we find out we all have a story. And if I can help people learn how to tell their story, then we can relate to everybody else better because none of us have any idea what anybody's going through. How have your, you have good relationships still from the game of baseball. Roberto Hernandez is one you touched on in the book who many who, who still lives in this area. Um, have you talked to them much since all, all of this has happened and how, how many of your baseball friends, what have they thought of kind of the, the journey that you're, you're willing to discuss? A few of my friends. Uh, yes. I have not talked to Bert about this yet. He knows that I have Parkinson's. He doesn't know that I do not except now when he listens to you, but I need to get a hold of Bert either today or tomorrow and and catch him up because the last he knew I was just getting sicker and sicker and it's almost I don't know the word to put with this it's almost embarrassing because of all the groups of Parkinson's people I have on my phone that I'm in groups with on Facebook I haven't even put anything on there yet other than my new website and things like that, because I don't, Hey, I'm well. And then you have somebody else go, well, why is he well? And why am I not well? I don't know the magic formula. I just know what I've been through and I know where I am now. And now I'm healthy. Which is amazing. And, and you hit, you know, the, there was another piece of this book that also was new for me because you really went through in fairly uh, detailed fashion, your first go round with the game when you were first, yeah. a sign and what that whole experience was like. What did you learn through all that, that you think now looking back and how did it help you when you were given that unique opportunity to get to the big leagues um, after coaching kids in high school? Okay. I'm going to use a little bit of faith. I'm not trying to scare anybody. I don't push on anybody else, but that was a whole prayer process. And I look back at that time and if I would have got that dream when I was young and I thought I deserved it, I'd have been a spoiled, rich little brat and who probably would have been out of the game very quickly. But having to go through life and go back and redo things the right way and go to college and have a family and have those kids and bring them up. I was scared to death to have kids because you know what? You're going to be like your dad. Your dad beat people. You're going to beat people. And here we go. And, but when they put Hunter in my arms, all I could do is cry and go, who could touch a kid? 
And then your perspective starts changing and you see where God has saved you every step of the way. I was never supposed to get out of the hospital. Asthma, then pneumonia within 24 hours. And then you drive across country with your dad in a car with the windows rolled up and he's smoking like a freight train. That's really not helping life-threatening asthma. And just all of it happening. And you want to get it down so that you can relate that to your audience and let them know you're not alone. You know, we're going to go through this too. And, but the faith aspect of it for me has carried me through. I think at 35, when I did it for everybody but me, I think that's when God told me, you go, now you're ready. And he gave me a glimpse of what could have been at that moment in my life. At 35, I got a second chance at being a kid again because of a group of kids. That in itself is just such an incredible story. When I pushed them, they pushed back. We made each other better. When I went to the tryout, I couldn't even get my own high school kids out. And I'm like, this is going to be so bad. I can't get 16, 17-year-old kids out. And then I go there, and you're throwing 98. And I'm like, okay, now I guess I'm getting sued because I'm throwing 98 at high school kids. All right. And I see that hand in all of it, everything my grandparents taught me growing up and how faith has been a stronghold. And God has been with me the whole way. And it's been me that screwed up because I'm the one with free will. And you know what? We're all human. We're all going to falter. We're going to say the wrong things that we shouldn't say. Uh, most of the time, not even on purpose. It just comes out. And that's just because that's who we are. That's our nature. We're going to screw up. You had Dennis Quaid write the forward for this. How... Um... How did that discussion go to get him involved in this book? Obviously, you guys have had a relationship since the movie. <laughs> that discussion with my wife, Shauna, went like this. I'm not bugging that man. He's incredibly busy. He's on every insurance commercial I can see, and he's making all these movies and all the documentaries, starting podcasts. I am not bugging the man. And then I get a phone call from Dennis, and he goes, hey, can I help with the book? I'm like, how do you even know about the book? Well, he and Sean are talking. <laughs> and so he and I start talking. Then he writes this forward. And again, you're a dad and you're a middle-aged man. And you're going, wow, somebody thinks of me that much who has made all these movies, who has been through what I've been through with the addiction thing and everything else. But he's also this guy who everybody looks at. He's the man who when we went to Vegas for Russell Athletics, when the movie came out and they stuck us in a room for 500 that had like 2000 in it, and he pulls me outside, he's my friend. And we go to the blackjack table and we sit out at this casino and nobody's in the casino because everybody's at the party and it's just me and my buddy hanging out. And then I look up and there's 500 people around our table. And I went, oh yeah, you're a movie star. And it's just a different life that they live. And I have no idea what it would be like. I got a taste of that walking through an airport at three o'clock in the morning. And I look up on the TV and it's me and Dennis interviewing with Larry King. <laughs> and I'm like, oh. And so everybody's looking at TV and they're looking at me. And that's back when I had hair. So you could kind of recognize me. I'm like, this must be kind of what it's like. And, but yeah, Dennis doing that. We've been in contact and he's, he wrote the forward. He's going to endorse. He's going to take pictures with the book. I mean, apparently my wife and my marketing team have done some things behind my back that I was not aware of. 
Do you have another good story about something that they've done to, uh, from a connection or two that may be tied to the book? I'm sure I'm going to forget something, but it's my marketing team is out of Vegas. And I did a speech a few years ago for this company, AVI. I met this guy. Afterwards, they asked me, how do you think this was possible to come back and not only be as good, but way better than you were the first time? And I said, do you want the secular answer? Do you want the truth? And they said the truth. And that's where I met this man who lives in San Diego. And he introduced me to his son-in-law who was doing marketing. And they saw me back in December when I did a speech. And it was a really good speech for a lot of people. But they saw me when I was really sick. I weighed like 170 pounds because of 10 stomach surgeries last year. They're coming in today to discuss strategy, but I met them through this guy three years ago who I ended up doing not only his business, but then a men's group deal at his church. Shauna goes to it and everybody has a great time because it's both of us. She's the only woman there. And it's the first time I've told the rehab story. And so I've got all these men who have issues and they've got young families and they're going through things and you know, whether it be infidelity or alcohol problems or opiate problems, drug problems, life problems, work problems. There's always somebody at work you don't like. There's always that one person who, if they weren't there, it would be so smooth and you could just sail through. But there's that one person and that person, like my grandfather said, there are good people and there are bad people. That was one of the lessons my grandparents taught me. It Good and bad doesn't denote color or where you're from. There are those people who are just incredible givers of life, and they're those that want to take life away. And it's not up to me to judge that. That's God's judgment. But my deal is to surround myself with the really good people and be the best me I can be. If I can be the best me I can be, I can be a good teammate. And it sounds like now you've surrounded yourself with all the right people in in a challenging time. I mean, for all of us right now, this is a challenging period, no matter where you are, no matter what situation in life you are. Absolutely, it's challenging. I thought the COVID stuff was bad, and now we've got George Floyd and Avery, and you're just, we just seem to be like a snowball rolling down a hill in one of those Bugs Bunny cartoons, and we're out of control. And everybody needs to catch their breath, and we need to have a conversation. Absolutely, we need to have a conversation. It's kind of hard to converse then. We need to sit down and have a serious conversation because as a kid in the military, a military brat growing up, I didn't care what color anybody was. I just want to play ball. And you play ball and you play with who's there. And I don't understand it. I wish it was different. I don't know how to make it different. If somebody tells me, I'll, help, I'll certainly do my best. But I've got teammates and, and Roberto Hernandez I mean, Ozzy Gee and all those guys, those are my friends. Those are my family. Those are my teammates. Those are the people I would go to war with because we know each other. Um, I'm curious from your end, you had mentioned that you've had to adapt during this period. Obviously, you give speeches. <laughs> What's the greatest challenge? I mean, you're connecting one-on-one, -on -one, but you're doing a Zoom call, let's say, for a couple hundred people, and normally you're making eye contact. You're seeing all that. You're walking a room. How different is that as a public speaker right now to do that? It's a lot different, but it's helping me change and adapt again. 
and do something I didn't even think I could do. For two years, Sean and I were like, we need to try out these viral meetings and see if we can just do face-to-face -face meetings. We don't have to leave the house. We don't have to pack. No TSA. Can you imagine that? And then COVID hits and we're like, hey, can you do an interview on Zoom? And I'm like, all right. Hey, can you do a meeting? And this one company, and I love them to death, and five meetings come out of it in different regions in the country. It is tough because I get to look at my mug the whole time, and I'm like, oh, dude, I hope I don't have a hair hanging out of my nose or something. That would be bad. And there's no reaction from the crowd because I draw I'm a baseball player. You want that attention, and you want that feedback so you know that you're doing well so you can keep going. Just have to depend on the story being good and the lessons that I'm teaching. And so that is different. I've done a couple graduations like this and I've done several meetings and we got several more lined up. The first one out of the box is next week in Alabama. I'm talking to all the superintendents in Alabama. And I've been watching to see if they were gonna cancel, if anything's gonna happen because you hear spike, oh no, spike, oh no. I'm hoping it'll go off. I don't know what it's gonna be like putting 200 men in a room or superintendents in a room with me and how we're gonna socially distance. I have no idea how that's gonna work. But this has been new and it's been different and I'm learning and slowly. I'm 56, I'm not a social media whiz, <laughs> but my marketing team is. And so they're coming in to teach me how to do everything cute and fancy, so we'll see. Well, one thing's for sure, you've got a story that certainly is worth listening to for people out there. And I hope people get your new book, Dream Makers, um, in whatever fashion they decide to consume it. And hopefully, I know you were supposed to be at Tropicana Field here in June, here this month, but hopefully uh, there is a time where we can bring you back to Tropicana Field and we can, we can have a day and, and uh, say hello in person versus virtually. I would love to do that, Neil. I would appreciate that. Well, I hope our audience has enjoyed our conversation with Jim Morris. I hope you continue to stay safe and stay healthy, and we'll have more of these special alumni podcasts, and we certainly will chat with you soon.